0: Welcome to The Human Condition with Lisa Gregory. Dr. Cheryl Hobson is a dedicated teacher and a committed advocate for those marginalized by society. But at her very heart, she is a poet. Hobson, also an essayist and the author of two books, Fragile and Black Notes, takes her own life experiences, some heart-wrenching, as well as her observations of the world around her, and creates beautiful prose. On this episode of The Human Condition with Lisa Gregory, Hobson, an assistant professor of English and African American Studies at Western Kentucky University, talks about her life as a queer black woman and a feminist. She also talks about her love for creating the written word and what it means to her and what she hopes it means to others. I want to start with a poem that I especially love, written by you, um, A Sunday Afternoon of Listening to Lionel Richie Sing.
1: Would you read that for us, please? Absolutely. And I would like to thank the um, Indianapolis Review for publishing that poem on my behalf, A Sunday Afternoon of Listening to Lionel Richie Sing. This music and the pungent sweet of honeysuckle overrun in my love's backyard takes me back to Sunday afternoons with my grandma, back to Holiness Tabernacle, Church of God in Christ, back to the porch on Mormon Road, back to my sister's and my grandma Vivian's home, back to that long ago childhood in Virginia. At 37, I returned on a Sunday in October to bid farewell to the woman who introduced me to God. And the same preacher of my youth studied my black slacks and frowned. Sundays during my childhood were never easy. Those hours of being held captive by reverence, repeat commandment to give until it hurts. The constant question of grown folks, have you seen your father? As with the perceivable grief, I like the Sundays of my adult life better. Lionel singing about a need to be free. No sermons of me perishing in flames for being me. No grandma willing her mind shut to empty already shallow pockets.
0: Could you tell our listeners where that poem came from? Sort of the backstory. What is that poem trying to
1: say? Well, I know that it was one summer um, I was visiting. My wife and I were in a long distance uh, relationship for seven years. And so I would visit during my summer breaks and winter breaks and things. And I just happened to be outside and, or, and I was listening to Alina Ritchie and I, I was, uh, and everything seemed familiar. And I thought, wow, this, it was reminding me of my grandparents' home and uh, my Virginia childhood. And then all of a sudden I just started writing. There's a line in uh, in Richie's "Easy Like Sunday Morning" mm-hmm. um, where he's where he's just he's like, I know that sounds funny, but I just can't stand the the pain. You know, he's just mm-hmm. I'm leaving you tomorrow. It's the idea that he's just got to go, he's got to be free, and it, it just made me aware that there was something in that childhood that felt confining and that was connected in every way to and and sort of um, circumscribed and limiting. Um, to that sort of holiness experience of growing up holiness, as you know, as now recognizing that I was a queer child, I didn't know that then, <laughs> um, and also as the child of divorce, right? Because divorce in the '70s it wasn't so commonplace, you know. But right. um, and so I was a, I was kind of a, an anomaly, and and it just made me aware that adults can and do intentionally. Her children, meaning the question of, have you seen your father? Mm-hmm. Um, after which I think so is many powerful. Times of being asked that, yeah. yeah. So as being asked that, you notice, which made me pay attention to language, actually. So it probably enhanced hmm. my hmm. my work as a poet, and because I've always been responsive to language. Um, and so it made me pay attention and realize that there was something more behind that question. Um, and so all of that came together, coalesced in this poem. When you live through it, and, and and for those who are able to survive um, the kind of hypocrisy we experience sometimes growing up in the church, uh, it becomes material, fodder, right? And, right, right. And then the hope is that it reaches other people. And like you, it speaks to them in a way
0: that—for
1: mm-hmm. mm-hmm. me, I'm always hoping there's a, a sort of a glimmer of hope or light in my poetry, but also some kind of healing. Hmm. That allows and a recognition something you know that, that you can take away with and sort of puzzle over and, and or find yourself in
0: I would think with you being a queer woman and you you prefer the the term queer and that's the term that you prefer yes,
1: absolutely yeah I in mean, part because i'm a I'm a black feminist scholar, womanist poet thinker, and so I'm influenced heavily influenced by Alice Walker and Audre Lorde, all these black women poets and writers who came before me and who identified as. Black feminists and womanists, and Alice Walker's idea of sexuality, and mm-hmm. Audre Lorde's have informed my own. So I choose queer just because, just to, and June Jordan, who identified as bisexual, right? because I recognize that there's space, and I never want to be limited by, it, it makes sense, right, if you think about my poetry. Right. I don't like words that, that circumscribe or, or foreclose.
0: Was there a real real struggle with your sexual identity? Because, you know, you feel, figured out early on that you were queer and also that you were a feminist. I mean, you were a little girl thinking After like this. Theory, I was
1: very young. Yes. Well, you know how you make a feminist? You put her in a situation where she sees daily women dis- disempowered. They And often and sometimes sort of allow themselves so to be disempowered. And she sees men take advantage of women they claim to love in a way that is um, the antithesis, at least the way I understood it, of love. And so that's how you make a child feminine, very early.
0: When you think back to being a little girl, did you experience that with the women in your life being, you know, disenfranchised and marginalized?
1: Oh my gosh! If you look at uh, all of my scholarship deals, with Mm -hmm. it's it's almost exclusive focus on black family dynamics, Mm -hmm. Um, and and in particular the nuclear um, patriarchal nuclear family model, and how, at least in my um, experience of it and my research and writing, um, I have this idea that it is most disempowering, most damage. It has the possibility of being most damaging for girls daughters in particular, um, and women. And so I, yeah, absolutely. I have, and that, ex- that, that insight comes from my own personal experience, but also from my research over what, over 20 years of research on, um, you know, family dynamics, black family dynamics, um, black womanhood, black girlhood the experience of daughters who do not have children, which <laughs> is a right. very different dynamic, right? Um, the expectations of those daughters. And so then to add queer or um, lesbian or um, non-heterosexual to that, um, uh, it's really, to me, it's a compelling and complex and exciting thing at 47. But as a kid, <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it was overwhelming. And so I don't think that I allowed that full consciousness, even with the awareness like that helped me come to, and it was my sisters who helped me come to this way more so than any other. And they were open to it, mm-hmm. like open to me talking to them about it. But Which they, they were so? not. They were not
0: no, queer. No, not at all. You did lose your two
1: sisters. My middle sister um, and my oldest sister died. I don't really talk too much about their deaths because they have children and grandchildren. I. Right. Um, but, uh, and so when my middle sister died, she was 35 and I was 34. We were Irish twins. Wow. And um, my older sister was 39 and I was 35. So I was like, I was just coming out of uh, this moment of darkness from losing my middle sister. So could you read What My
0: Body Knows for, for
1: our sure. listeners? And I want to give thanks to guys that Review for publishing The Way My Body Knows. What's on my mind? Sleep deprivation and the death of a family member long estranged from me, but buried deep in my heart. The bewitching hour in which I converse in silence with my 10 years deceased sister, 15 months my senior, Irish twins born black and to an African-American shapeshifter of a woman. Birdsong and a car in the distance with the muffler removed. The bird song does not compete with the noise of machinery. And sounds long after the disruption of an exhaust pipe refitted. The downward turn of my mouth, my face, my eyes, 10 plus years and several iterations later. The way my body knows everything my mind tries to keep from me.
0: And that was sort of a tribute to both your sisters, wasn't it?
1: It was indeed, absolutely. Uh, I was uh, in my office one day and I was just going <laughs> to be looking out the window and I. Whenever I look out the window, I look up <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> because I was raised holiness, and, um, <laughs> I, and I think that. you know it's in there, it's ingrained. <laughs> and so, um, bam, I've an exhaust pipe, and then but the birds just kept singing, kept on singing, and mm-hmm. I thought, isn't that what we do? Mm-hmm. Isn't that what we do? And I and I sat down, and that's what came out um, between classes which is also how I write poetry.
0: You didn't come out to your, to your family or your mother, I guess I should say, and father until you were an adult. Um, right. But there was a whole history of queer folk, for lack of a better term, Absolutely. as you grew yes. up. Could you elaborate a little bit? Because I found that really interesting.
1: I was aware that um, my uncle, it, it was gay. he passed away in 2007, Um, My dad's youngest brother, Vernon, who lived in Washington, D.C., in DuPont Circle. Thank you. Holla. I love it. I love it. I'm like, that's where you go to be gay. Yes, you do. And so he knew. He got out of Virginia and he went to D.C., DuPont Circle in particular. He just had to life I admired and he but he was I think he was closeted I, I, listen on the surface it was a glass closet because I was clearly mm-hmm. aware as a child he was always himself in the house he never um, refused to sort of walk the way he walked and talk the way he talked he talked with his hands you know and he's effeminate my oldest aunt two sons uh, um, one passed away aged epidemic the, um, mm. in the 90s but um and so I was aware of them, and they both they were artists, one lived in New York, and he was a designer, which i thought I thought, well, listen here, yeah, this is awesome. When I looked out, and the people that I saw who I admired in addition to my aunts, the straight because they they're all straight, <laughs> <was> <laughs> my my um my like the the my uncles and my cousins who were like out there living their lives you know just to, my uncle i remember my uncle saying to me he took i don't know if he did but he said he took a miniature poodle to the million man march i thought that was <laughs> profound i thought it was profound it was I a love little it. white poodle i said this is who i am i was clear on that after that you were fortunate too to have these I role bet, models I,
0: yeah. I you know i keep looking at the the conundrum of growing up holiness with the yeah. expectations and con- confinement there is with that, but then you had this other side that was living life. This is who we are, and then you had to throw in the the racial aspect. You know, oh, it's hard enough being a, a a black person in America, mm-hmm. but then to be mm-hmm. a black gay person, and you address right. that in in you know as an academic, a scholar,
1: woman, uh, daughter, wife, aunt. Um professor, teacher, educator, all of who I am. I bring the full on everything I do. It's just, there's nothing that's separate. Everything is enhanced. Everything I do is enhanced by that.
0: That's a lot to have on your plate, Cheryl.
1: The opposite would be not being who I am. Mm. And I did that for Mm. for most of my life. Mm. And I'm not interested any longer. So I, at 47, almost 48 in March, it's pretty exciting. I I can handle this. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? I, I think, this younger woman handled all of this, Mm -hmm. surely at 48, I can handle it. So I'm excited about the great thing about aging and growing up and, and becoming an adult is just embracing, for me at least, fully. Everything my sister told me early to do, be who you are. My older sister always said this to me, don't be like me. You cannot be like me, and I cannot be like you. Be yourself. The idea of a
0: college education, were you first generation?
1: I was a first generation My my mother was. My mother attended because her uncle, who was uh, the first African-American millionaire in our hometown, wow. um, funded her and her cousins and um, their education. That's how she was able to attend. And because I'm naive, <laughs> <laughs> I thought I could also attend. My uh, th- sophomore year, wealthy heiress a widower. She paid for my tuition in the next three years, and I got a $100 stipend each month. I wasn't college prepared. I wasn't. And so I became that <laughs> with the help of that, with the funding, right? I became more than that. I became um, this sort of baby scholar, baby feminist, because it was at Roanoke College that I was introduced to womanism, black feminism, and it was through a white um adjunct professor who was also a journalist at the local newspaper hmm. and she taught me how to write. She taught me she and my one of my English professors Virginia Stewart, they taught me how to write in hmm. the beginning essays um, by by modeling my work after um, Alice Walters and, and, and at the same time I was introduced to Alice Walter.
0: You also growing up your mother was a reader of Toni Morrison. Reader, yes. Yeah, and so you were not unaware of the strong no, black that's, that's, literary. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. Right.
1: no, I was not. I was. I grew up in a, a household and a family of readers, actually. Hmm. My mother ran. Her sisters ran. My grandmother ran. They all were readers.
0: Did that impact your feminism aspect at all, yes, Cheryl? It did.
1: Hmm. what? Opened me to feminism. It made me aware that there was another way of thinking, mm-hmm. and so and existing. And be, you know, as a black girl and woman, as a child, as a daughter in a family, um, there was another way of relating to men and boys, of relating mm-hmm. to power. Mm-hmm. Um, Alice Walker gave me that in *The Color Purple*. Toni Morrison, oh my God, she was—they were my first teachers. Yeah, Toni Morrison, Maya Angelou, and Alice Walter. And my mother, you know, and her sisters, because they would discuss the work around me. Where
0: did the African-American studies come in?
1: Well, I was doing it all along, really without knowing it. I'm a literary historian, primarily, but I also write on novels and fiction and short fiction and poetry. Um, But my work is primarily about the life and writing of black women writers. Hmm. And so um, this job opened up and I thought, and, and it was, it was. It had everything in it that I do. It was, it was literature-based. It, it engaged with ideas of Black and Third Wave feminism and generational Black feminism. Um, it had an African American Studies component to it, and so I left English uh, for for two and a half years and went to African American Studies. Hmm. Um, and so that's how that's how I became an African American Studies professor. And then I I I developed in that. Um, disciplines, presenting at uh, um, the national conferences, et cetera, and and sort of building my name. Um, And also just becoming a a thinker and a scholar in that tradition. But I was already doing it without knowing it fully. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I just was able to combine them. When I went back to English in 2019, then I I became a professor, assistant professor of English again. Um, But I'm both. I straddle. I also do creative writing, so and I teach uh, writing. To
0: wrap this up, is there anything you would like to add?
1: My uh, university, the English department, is it has is using my poem and it's going out. It went out to all the local high schools, and they will be writing at either an essay response. I think it's an essay or poetry response to that for a contest um, for Black History Month that are was part of. The idea that. Um, Lorde said my words will be there. Perhaps some one day someone will stand up and say I was wrong, but my words will be there. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important, especially for black women. Intellectuals, writers, poets, thinkers, my words will be there. And these younger ones are taking it into their consciousness and their home.
0: Well, if you if you would honor us with with re, you want you chose this one. I, I picked two because I was greedy, but <laughs> Then you chose this one, and and I would like for you to read it.
1: Sure. I want to thank Thurston uh, Journal for publishing on Origin in 2019. On Origin. Last night I dreamed that I, not my house, but I, was a stop on the Underground Railroad. And I huddled masses in the bend and tuck of my skirt and bellows. And the safe space of I held until... I sent them flying, fleeing, not knowing the trust and the strength of the well-oiled collective, and I awoke, startled by what was, for all intents and purposes, a nightmare. Perverse me, she born 110 years before the Emancipation Proclamation born, unfree to a woman born, unfree to a woman born free. And speaking an old tongue, carrying life that begot life, that begot me, and I reversed the curse. End it.
0: I would like to thank my guests for joining me today on The Human Condition with Lisa Gregory. And thank you, the listener, for joining us today. If you would like to know more about the show, please visit my website at thehumanconditionpodcast.com.